Okay. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce Laurent Jaffreau, Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of Paris, Paris Pantheon uh, Sorbonne, uh, who's going to talk about forgiveness and weak agency. Thank you. I thank the president for the kind invitation and welcome and the society as, as well. Uh, um, so, and thank you for being here to participate in, um, I hope, in the discussion uh, of, um, um, about forgiveness, a subject on which uh, everybody has something to say, I, I guess. Um, uh, this account of forgiveness is about people who have difficulty controlling their vindictive desires for reasons either contextual or constitutional. For them, forgiveness is both the problem and the solution. It is problematic because they cannot change their desires at will in order to forgive. However, they can influence their desires by deciding to forgive. Sketching out what constitutes forgiveness is quite tricky for at least two reasons. First, forgiveness is not the name of a single distinct operation, but rather of a collection of practices which vary within and across particular cultures. The notion encompasses institutional as well as personal forgiveness and is flexible enough to extend into the areas of excuses, clemency, pardon, or amnesty, etc. Second, accounts of forgiveness are often shaped by moral considerations. However, my question tonight is not uh, what kind or degree of forgiveness, a theory of forgiveness should value from a moral viewpoint, but rather how to account for how forgiveness works. I leave aside considerations about the moral reasons of forgiveness and concentrate on its inner workings. Is forgiving a demonstration of the forgiver's freedom and strength in the face of an agent weak enough to be at fault? There is a common view of the forgiver as a sovereign agent endowed with the power of bestowing pardon in full control of the operation and its effects. I suggest we turn the tables and consider the forgiver as a weak agent and forgiveness as a technique suitable to weak agency. I will claim that although there is a voluntary dimension to forgiveness that culminates in the decision to forgive, that decision is only a pre preliminary step, not the whole of forgiving. Forgiveness becomes intelligible when it is envisaged as involving a process, not an isolated act or decision. The initial step lies within the voluntary control of the forgiver. The immediate and intentional outcome of the decision to forgive is the formation of a new context that modifies some of the circumstances for the forgiver as well as for the forgivee, if I may say so. I'm not sure about, about the term. Further consequences, notably changes in the forgiver's desires and feelings, which would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve without that modification of context, may be, views, they may be viewed as what Jon Elster calls states that are essentially byproducts, that is, upshots that cannot be brought about knowingly and intentionally or at will. The decision to forgive often results in a state of having forgiven, but not in the same way that the decision to stand up and walk away results in my leaving my office. A complex and fallible process of a causal and mediate nature occurs between the decision to forgive and successful forgiveness. Thus, a sound account of forgiveness should be dynamic, that is, should focus on its intertemporal structure. In the first part of the paper, I sketch out the basic features of forgiveness that matter to my two-stage account. And the second part tries to shed light on the relation between the two stages, between the decision to forgive and the subsequent process. So first, 
the dy dynamic view of forgiveness. Forgiving is a three-term operation. It involves the offended as forgiver, the offender, and the offense. A fault serious enough to merit revenge, punishment, or forgiveness. In cases of personal forgiveness, nobody but the offended, or perhaps a very close proxy, who is also significantly affected by the offense, is qualified to forgive, at least according to the prevailing view. This is not true in cases of institutional forgiveness, which is often given on behalf of others. Why three terms? Why do we need to mention both the offense and the offender? Because it is not the offense, but the offender who may be redeemed by forgiving. The transformation to which forgiveness opens the way changes not the fault, but the culprit. The offense does not lose its status as a serious wrong. Otherwise, a forgiven offense would not still be liable to other concurrent responses, in particular punishment. It does make sense to punish someone for a wrong that has been forgiven, as long as it is a matter of personal and human forgiveness, that is, bestowed by the wrong party. The situation is quite different in most cases of political forgiveness, not to mention divine forgiveness. Uh, political forgiveness where claimants expect from the institution something distinct from personal revenge. Instead of trying themselves to get even with offenders, they ask a third party to punish so that institutional forgiveness would consist in renouncing, diminishing, or suspending punishment. In a legal system where punishment is sharply distinguished from revenge, institutional forgiveness involves managing punishment, adjusting penalties. On the contrary, in cases of personal forgiveness, the forgiver waives a vindictive course of action, since forgiveness is supposed to have an effect on personal revenge, nothing prevents it from being combined with punishment. Otherwise, it would be identical with mercy, as Garrard and McNutton have pointed out. There is nothing inconsistent in, in stating, I, 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 forgive him. I forgive him, but want him to be punished. Whereas it would be inconsistent to say, uh, I, I forgive him, but I will get even with him. Private forgiveness and legal punishment can go hand in hand. Their compatibility depends on distinctions between the roles of victims and the courts, and, and the fact that wiping the slate, the slate clean does not mean erasing the wrong, but rather closing a painful chapter and perhaps moving forward. Forgiveness is a technique of indirect action on the wrongdoer and the wronged, and it leaves the wrong intact. Compare with political or legal practices such as pardoning, which suppresses the penal consequences of the offense or amnesty, which consists in forgetting the wrong, the picture is quite different. Personal forgiveness is not a form of clemency that wipes out the offense or rules out penal re responses. I have suggested that the, the initial decision to forgive creates a new context in which the process of forgiveness may thrive. One interesting difficulty in the analysis of forgiveness, which is also a clue to a philosophical solution, is that the term may stand for both the decision and the process. I forgive you is a performative utterance that signals the decision to forgive and related conventions. However, one cannot reduce the whole story of forgiveness, the process of forgiving, or even the initial decision to that speech act. Forgiveness as a decision, as well as a process, may remain silent without the need for such an utterance. Whereas the performative I promise is that in which the act of promising consists, I forgive you is not the whole of forgiveness for two reasons. First, forgiveness involves more than the initial commitment. Second, and most importantly, that commitment may be signaled by other means, notably by the behavior of the forgiver. And on, on commissing, commissive forgiving as distinct from promising, uh, I drew on Glenn Petrigrove. 
uh, moreover, sometimes when one belatedly becomes aware of having already overcome one's vindictive attitude, the decision to forgive is just reported either by a constative use of I forgive you or by other means. Although it is interesting to approach forgiveness or rather the initial step from the angle of speech acts theory, it cannot provide a full theory of forgiveness. The utterance may have various functions, notably expressive, conveying one's non-vindictive attitudes, declarative, directly producing the state of affairs in which the wrongdoer is forgiven, commissive, that is, committing oneself to a specific course of action, but also assertive, stating a matter of fact. The two-stage account fits in with that flexibility because the way in which the utterance may signal forgiveness varies according to its temporal distribution in the story. The commissive function operates at the beginning and may be reiterated. In this sketch of personal forgiveness, I emphasize the process that follows the initial decision. However, there is also a prior process that forgiveness seems to require, a process whereby the forgiver and the forgivee arrive at a shared awareness of the gravity of the fault. Think of what instant forgiveness might look like. Imagine a situation in which someone seriously wrongs someone so that the latter strongly resents the former but almost immediately offers forgiveness. There is something weird about this. Forgiving instantly makes sense in some context when no serious fault is involved and thus no real forgiveness either. For instance, in the case of a breach of etiquette, to some it is exquisitely polite to skate over others' faux pas, but forgiving does not mean ignoring the wrong. The kind of moving forward that forgiveness fosters is not that of oblivion, inattention, or indifference. It takes some time for the wrongdoer, as well as for the wronged, to assess and assume the seriousness of the wrong. Contrary to what accounts that, that recommend penance claim, uh, for instance, that of uh, Richard Swinburne, uh, uh, the necessity of this preparatory process is not necessarily moral, but is rather psychological. Since the formal object of forgiveness is a serious wrong, the thought of that object has to form. Otherwise, one would not know what one is doing when forgiving. One needs time to form the belief that the, the wrong is serious, so serious that it could justify revenge. Thus, the dimension of temporality is crucial to forgiveness. On the side of the forgiver, as much as on the side of the forgivee, some claim that forgiveness is conditional on the culprit's <coughs> repentance. What I call the preparatory process does not necessarily consist in that. It is tempting to construe that time as a period during which the wrongdoer goes around in sackcloth and ashes, adopting the penitential attitude that proves he or she is not unworthy of forgiveness. However, forgiveness is one possible response to a serious wrong which requires a minimally shared recognition of the seriousness of the wrong, not a maximal condition of penance. That preliminary, preliminary period of time, although it may result in the wrongdoers repenting, is given to both parties so that they may arrive at a meaningful comprehension of the fault without which forgiving and being forgiven would lack sense and motivation. Time is required to take measure of the seriousness of the wrong. This is a normative point indeed, but an epistemic, not moral one. One commonly accepted justif justification of declining to forgive is that it would be premature. If the wrong says to the wrongdoer, it is too early, the latter may feel the waiting time by doing something, such as cultivating remorse or regret. Rather than being a necessary condition of forgiveness, Penance seems to me a possible cons consequence of its temporal structure. Forgiveness responds not to the event of the wrong, but to that wrong as an object of joint consciousness, which does not, which cannot emerge instantly. However, 
there are particular situations in which penance seems to be a necessary condition when the wrongdoer asks for, for, for forgiveness and claims to be worthy of it. And in these particular, particular situations, the moral question surfaces. Although uh, I stress this pre preliminary process, the process before the decision to forgive, uh, 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 and the process that is expected to ensue, the view I, I take of forgiveness is a two-stage, not three-stage one. For during the preparatory period, the prior period, forgiveness has not yet begun. The formation of a joint awareness, awareness of the wrong might also lead to bitter resentment without any prospect of forgiveness on one side and remorse without any claim to forgiveness on the other side or through various combinations of reactive passions. Let us get back to the equivocality, equivocality of forgiving. It may stand metonymically for the initial act that opens it, as well as the consequent process. This is why there is no real contradiction in the same person at different points in the same story. If the, if, if the same person so claims at different points both to have forgiven and to be unable to forgive the same wrong. Forgiving may sometimes refer to the sudden decision and sometimes to the fallible process of transformation to which the decision commits the forgivee. On this view, forgiveness is not an interaction between two strong-willed and sovereign agents, nor between a free and generous forgiver and a weaker forgivee. It is a strategy rather than a therapy, a way of coping rather than a way of healing that the forgiver employs to achieve the very difficult aim of transforming him or herself and of allowing the other, perhaps, to move forward. Thus, forgiveness is a, to is a tool for the weak agent. Some claim that the transform transformational aim is about reconciliation. They do not mean that forgiving leads to friendship, which would be implausible, but that it aims at restoring uh, or instituting relationships between the forgiver and the forgivee. One objection to such a view is that forgiveness makes sense even in the absence of any relationships to restore and that it does not necessarily involve a desire to establish new relationships. An extreme version of the reconciliation view would be the idea that forgiving replaces hate with love. This might be acceptable if love is understood as practical rather than sentimental. For there is an interesting ambiguity surrounding love as well as the vindictive attitudes that love renounces. Does overcoming the vindictive stance mean renouncing anger and the desire to get one's revenge or just renouncing acting upon that desire or anger? And on this, I refer to Charles Griswold's interpretation of Joseph Butler, Joseph Butler on forgiveness and resentment. Uh, there is also a related question. If renouncing resentment may take some time, can one more immediately renounce cashing out one's resentment in a vindictive course of action? The decision to forgive is a decision not to accept one's desires to get, to get even. That negative acceptance is practical and volitional. It does not directly suppress the vindictive feelings, but does affect their practical consequences. Thus, it might be the case that someone has decided to forgive, acts upon that decision, that is, does not carry out the revenge, and pers persistently feels hate, anger, or other negative emotions. This psychological fact is also consistent with the intentional structure of forgiveness. The formal object of forgiveness, a serious wrong, has to remain present as an object of joint awareness and memory throughout the whole process. To forgive is not to look away, uh, as Colnine pointed out um, um, during, before the same society. Uh, uh, the forgiver re resists uh, a vindictive course of action. In fact, Colnine did not read his, his paper, unfortunately. He, he died before 
and the paper was just published, I think. Uh, in any case, he made this point. Um, the forgiver resists a, a vindictive course of action and makes an effort to silence the inward advice of revenge, but preserve the memory of the wrong that has been done and may still have the feelings that go with it. Personal forgiveness is supposed to operate upon revengeful desires. We need something more specific. Does the operation consist in diminishing, containing, or suppressing desires? By revengeful desires, do we mean a set of emotional attitudes and feelings or a conduct, a set of volitions and actions, or both? Forgiveness is an initial as, an, as an initial decision requires a situation in which we have hostile desires against the one who has, who has wronged us and consists in deciding not to translate those desires into hostile actions against the wrongdoer. There are at least two different conceptions of the way in which one may alter desires that motivate retaliation. One conception involves directly controlling one's feelings, and this is far from easy, except perhaps for a stoic, a stoic sage, who, however, being immune to vindictive sentiments, would not need to, to forgive. Another conception, sorry, he, can, he, can, he could do it, but he doesn't need to do it in any case. Another conception holds that although one cannot change one's desires at will, one can have a desire to act and not act according to that desire. In this dynamic account of forgiveness, the task of altering and perhaps extinguishing vindictive desires is left to the second stage, the subsequent, pro the subsequent process. The first stage, which suspends retaliation, has the further effect of opening up a process of aff affective transformation. Many times, the decision to forgive has the sole effect of triggering the slow reform of feelings, simply because the more immediate function of blocking, blocking vindictive action is running on empty, revenge being out of reach. By deciding to forgive, one creates a significantly different context, one in which one's attitudes and feelings are more likely to evolve. Many philosophers agree that forgiveness is a matter of overcoming one's hostile feelings. One advantage of this two-stage account is that it explains how forgiveness can perform that task. Were the operation of forgiveness confined to the nucleus of the decision to forgive, it would be an impossible performance, since one cannot efficaciously decide to change one's desires in the sense that one successfully decides to raise one's harm. Let us try to, to express this in one idiom of the philosophy of action. We ascribe to Jane as a potential forgiver several beliefs and desires. As a necessary condition, the belief be one that she has been wronged by Pearl, the potential forgivee, and that is responsible for a wrong that is serious enough to warrant not, not only blame, but also personal revenge. This is a belief that the decision to forgive and the subsequent process leave intact, as Lucy Allais uh, has stressed, contrary to what happens in cases of amnesty in which the wrong is eventually forgotten. Second, as a necessary condition, the desire do want to retaliate and get revenge, or at least feelings of anger and resentment. And this desire, or rather this set of somber affects and hostile motivations, is the material on which forgiveness operates and cannot be controlled at will directly, but only in an oblique way. This implies, this implies that someone exempt from D1 would not need to forgive. Of course, there are cases in which what we call forgiveness consists in just looking away and moving forward in the absence of D1. And this so-called forgiveness is oblivion, not memory of the wrong. Although the constellation of forgiveness is flexible enough to include many forms and degrees, this is closer to amnesty. Third, as a necessary condition, the desire D2 to avoid the consequences of acting under the influence of D1, and possibly the desire to overcome the feelings that accompany D1. 
or the desire of having desires others other than the one and, and being the kind of person who does, who does not take revenge and possibly other desires akin to practical love such as giving Paul a second chance, etc. And fourth, more or less explicitly, the belief be too that forgiving is what we should, she should do, what Jane should do in order to attain the object of D2, and that deciding to forgive is a first step in that direction. So the combination of B2 and D2 leads Jane to engage in a course of action that has no immediate effect on D1, but blocks the practical effects of the combination of B1 and D1, and eventually may modify D1 itself. B1 and D1, together with B2 and D2, form the core of the input of forgiveness. What is fascinating is that all are still present in the output of the decision to forgive. As to desires, one still has D1, since it cannot be suppressed by decree, and D2, since the decision to forgive does not suffice to satisfy it. As to the final up output of the process of forgiving, if it is successful, so uh, as to that final output, D2 is satisfied, B2 may subsist, but has lost its practical relevance, and D1 is altered but B1 is left untouched, so by the end of the process. If the first decisional step does not modify the input, and it appears that it does not, the question is, what is the use of deciding to forgive? My proposal is that deciding to forgive is equivalent to paying an entrance fee to the subsequent process. Although the output of the initial decision in terms of beliefs and desires appears to be identical to the input, there is some difference. B2 and D2 have exerted authority upon B1 and D1 so that the former are validated and the latter rejected as principles of action. In other words, what is in the output that was not in the input is just the decision to forgive. The entrance fee consists of a non-vindictive behavior. What is at stake is more than the practical rejection of D1. It is its revision. There are a variety of, of more or less successful outcomes from blocking the consequences of D1 to diminishing or even abandoning it. What is particular about the practice of forgiveness is its aim of changing one of the psychological states as, as it, at its motivational core, that is D1. To forgive is not to change one's desires or beliefs, at least not initially, nor to acquire new ones, at least not immediately. It is more akin to a pre-commitment, that is a way of influencing one's future conduct, possibly against one's desires. There are several types of pre-commitment techniques, and there is a major divide between external constraints, and this is Thomas Schelling's understanding of pre-commitments, external constraints, on the one hand, and inward resolutions on the other hand, and, and, and uh, this is inward resolution, uh, and this is uh, that to which George Ainsley gave much importance. Obviously, forgiveness as a pre-commitment belongs to the latter. It is a resolution. The efficiency of internal resolutions or personal rules is a controversial issue, but I think that the case of, the case of forgiveness pleads in favor of the thesis that with, with some luck, they may be efficient. One objection to the view that the decision, decision to forgive is a pre-commitment analogous to the payment of an entrance fee is that there are cases of forgiveness, even successful ones, in situations where the decision to forgive is absent. <coughs> My first answer is that the flexibility of the notion of forgiveness allows for forms in which the decision to forgive does not intervene as well as forms in which the decision plays a major role in producing favorable circumstances. 
I do not claim to give a comprehensive account of all forms of forgiveness. However, I propose that there is merely a difference in degree between the decision to forgive and the implicit acceptance of a premise that one should not take revenge. Forgiveness may have its origin in an implicit and unconscious stance as well as in a solemn decision. However, it is doubtful that an, an implicit choice can be referred to as a pre-commitment in the specific form of a resolution. Adopting silently a particular course of action may, nev never may nevertheless serve as a pre-commitment, as we shall see soon, uh, as, as we shall see very soon. Uh, an important qualification. The decision to forgive does not play only the role of a pre-commitment because it also functions to communicate with the forgivee. A dynamic account should not underestimate the expressive dimension and the normative relations between the two parties. Specifically, on this view, the influence of the declaration on the forgivee is more direct than on the forgiver's own further transformation. The former is informed of the latter's commitment to forgive, which makes a difference and can react to that. However, the commitment does not give the forgivee an enforceable right to forgiveness, nor that the communicative element suppose the existence of a community of which both would be members living together in, on good terms. It remains that without the communicative element which is conveyed either by speech acts or by discernible behavior, forgiveness would amount to a technique of self-management and would, and would thus lose its relational dimension. As I say elsewhere in the paper, forgiveness may be described as a social act of the mind, uh, to borrow that expression, uh, social act of the mind, from um, Thomas Reed's uh, essay on the active powers. And now I move, uh, I move on to my second point about the role and influence of the decision to forgive. Both, both the decision to forgive and, and the subsequent process may be described as consisting in renouncing revenge, but in different senses. The former, the decision, is a commitment not to act in compliance with one's persistent vindictive desires, whereas during the latter the process, the desires are altered and may be eventually extinguished. This account thus combines a practical and emotional understanding of renouncing revenge, whereas traditional accounts urge us to choose one or the other. My proposal is that the relation between the two stages is indirect. The decision to forgive does not directly cause the process of forgiveness. It creates circumstances that along with some luck and other circumstances on the wrongdoer's side may cause a transformation of feelings. What is new in this set of circumstances does not simply result from the decision to forgive, but also depends on favorable factors, such as the wrongdoer's attitude or other changes in the story or environment of the wronged, notably the removal of obstacles to any change of posture. For instance, the belief that, that one is an object of, of scorn would be a very serious obstacle. And, and all factors that may be summarized as luck, all those factors matter a lot. The process of forgiveness is encouraged by circumstances that are not wholly created by the decision. However, forgiveness is not a blindfolded adventure. It is a paradigmatic social practice or a quasi-institution in which roles are predefined. The forgiver draws on common knowledge about what kind of things might happen and what course of conduct is expected when one commits to forgive, although there is nothing automatic about this. Forgivers know where they are going, although they are never sure of getting there. 
to decide to forgive is quite different in every respect from deciding to Brexit. The requirements of forgiveness may be presented in terms of the conditions necessary for forgiveness to occur. First, on the forgiver's side, a necessary but not sufficient condition is the commitment to forgive, either as a performative or as a practical acceptance of a non-vindictive line of conduct. And this disjunctive necessary condition is not a sufficient condition because the process of forgiveness depends on other factors. <clears throat> on the forgiver's side, there are no sufficient conditions, otherwise the wrongdoer would have a right to be forgiven. Um, once some conditions are fulfilled, which does not fit in with the common understanding of forgiveness, but there is at least one necessary condition, that of considering the gravity of the wrong, which may consist in repentance or other attitudes. All these necessary but insufficient conditions, including luck and other necessary conditions, constitute as a whole an unnecessary and sufficient condition of forgiveness to draw on John Mackey's notorious analysis of the historian's use of cause in terms of an insufficient but necessary part of a condition which is itself unnecessary but sufficient for the result. The whole set of causes is unnecessary because uh, the final effect, namely the end state of forgiveness, might be produced by other, other sufficient sets of causes, such as love, divine intervention, mercy, chronic indulgence, uh, maybe the inability to hear what Jeffrey Murphy called the legitimate claim of vindictive passions, or even a depressed sense of deserving any wrong done to us, etc. Now, the question is whether the decision to forgive as one of the insufficient but necessary causal ingredients plays a special role, perhaps the main role, in bringing about the subsequent process and the final state. The question may sound bizarre. When I decide to go to the swimming pool next week, and, and when I do so, my decision is obviously a relevant cause of my going to the swimming pool. This decision is also a reason to do so, in addition to the reasons for my decision. It is at this point that the premise of weak agency comes in. I describe as weak those agents who have significant difficulty controlling their conduct over time, acting in accordance with their judgment as soon as they lose sight of well-considered reasons, sticking to their mo most solemn decisions. In fact, weak agents, in this sense, are not unable to forgive. Repeated evidence of their tendency not to keep resolutions may negatively affect their trustworthiness in the eyes of others, as well as their self-esteem and self-trust. However, it seems that it is not pointless for them to take decisions and plan that future, their future conduct. The question in the case of the resolution to forgive is, how does it work? According to the premise of weak agency, the, pro the process of forgiveness is brought about by a set of favorable circumstances of which the commitment to forgive is a part. The process, properly speaking, is not the effect, but rather the consequence of that decision. Here I draw on Herbert Hart and Tony Honore's distinction between effect and consequence in their 1959 book. Uh, event B may result from event A in at least two different ways, according to them. B may be the effect of A, A being a condition, simple or complex, sufficient to bring about A, or B may be the consequence of A, A being not a condition sufficient to bring about B, but a necessary part of the complex condition that is responsible for the production of B. For instance, Isabel is fined for speeding, this is not the effect of her spinning in the way that the melting of wax is an effect of heat, but is rather its consequence. It is an effect of the set of conditions that include the speeding along with the presence of, of, of police or a speed camera, the legal or administrative context and procedures, etc. So this is from Hart and Honoré. 
Let us consider another example which brings us closer to the point under discussion. In usual circumstances, my leaving a social event is an effect of my decision to leave, together with, say, a sentiment of boredom, the desire to go back home, or other motives. Even though the decision is closely connected with other determinants, including motives and reasons, it makes sense to say that my decision to leave is the most relevant cause of my leaving. Now, let us consider different circumstances. At 1 a.m., slumped on a, so on a sofa, sipping one more drink, soothed by ambient music, I am well aware that I ought to leave the party in order to be fresh enough for my early morning work. I decide that at 1.30, I will stand up and grab my jacket. At 1.50, I'm still somewhere between the sofa and the front door, glass in hand, enjoying a very long series of goodbyes, unable to tear myself away, hypnotized by exquisite company. At 2.30, luckily, an abstemious guest, divine grace, <laughs> offers to drive me back. In this case, the leaving is a consequence, not an effect of the initial step. However, the decision was not useless, for it triggered a course of action that ended in my leaving. I might have stayed much longer without my one o'clock decision to leave the sofa, missing the opportunity of the late escort. Although my self-control was limited to the ability to decide to leave without extending further to the subsequent course of action, my precarious, precarious planning of my future conduct was lucky. My getting off the sofa was a way of putting myself in a position to act in spite of my desire to stay. This may become more intelligible when we look at the distinction between mere sine qua non conditions and sine qua non conditions that are also causally relevant. And here I draw again on Hart and Honoré uh, on causation in the law. Uh, enrolling as a student is a mere sine qua non condition of getting a degree. Al although it is a necessary but insufficient condi condition of success, together with other conditions, it is not causally relevant as passing exams, etc. Buying a lottery ticket is a mere sine qua non condition for winning the lottery. Um, being the one whose number is drawn is another sine qua non condition, which is also per se insufficient for other conditions are required, such as having the ticket in one's possession. But contrary to the initial purchase of the ticket, the conditions associated with the lottery draw are causally relevant, obviously. The point is that, like logical requirements, statutory conditions have an analytic connection to the event. The fact that unless one is enrolled, one cannot graduate, or that unless one is a participant, one cannot win the lottery, is similar to Hart and Honoré's example of causally irrelevant sine qua non conditions in producing harm or a crime. I quote from Hart and Honoré. If she had never married, she would not have been a widow. Such a remark would have a function as a reminder that it would not be correct to say that she was a widow if she had never been married. Plainly, this is a condition sine qua non, which it would be absurd to list among that infinite series of necessary conditions from which, according to modern juristic theory, we have to select the proximate cause. Quote. It is true that the problem with forgiveness, unlike the legal problem of identifying an offender, is not how to select from a large set of necessary conditions the one that is the proximate cause. In, this mat in the matter of forgiveness, we know perfectly well who the culprit is, so to speak, the one who decided to forgive. In this context, as well as in legal contexts, especially criminal, the idea of relevant cause has a normative dimension and points to agential responsibility, here that of the forgiver. However, it also has a descriptive function and helps characterize the way in which an outcome is brought about. So I drew on Hart and Honoré's distinctions between effect and consequence and between different types of necessary conditions only as descriptive tools 
in order to account for the remote and unstable intra-personal way in which the decision to forgive influences the future selves of forgivers who do not have firm control over their conduct over time. My argument is that under the premise of weak agency, the decision to forgive or any action taken in lieu of this decision is a mere sine qua non condition. It removes obstacles from the path of forgiveness and sets up some favorable circumstances. It is also crucial to the expression and communication of the intention to forgive, and thus it may be causally relevant for the forgivee as facilitating reform or atonement. However, in cases of weak agency, which admits of degree, it does not seem to be true that the decision to forgive <coughs> per se plays a prominent role in contributing to successful forgiveness from the intrapersonal perspective. I forgive you is not a magic formula that would open up the prospect of peace and automatically trigger the subsequent steps. <coughs> Through the commitment to forgive, one enters an experience that is not fully under one's control. Some have claimed that causation could be accounted for in terms of the manipulation of effects. effects. So, so according to, to, to this view, that of Gasking, the claim that A causes B amounts to asserting that a competent agent would be able to produce B by activating A. The first stage of forgiveness has nothing to do with such a formula. A side consequence of the account I am proposing is that the practice of forgiving is not restricted to strong-willed people. It does not require high degrees of command and it is not tailored to merciful, merciful heroes. So it's time to come to my uh, Pascalian conclusion. To sum up, the same operation serves as a kind of self-nudging by which one enrolls in the experience of forgiveness, becomes a forgiver, and as a means of communicating with the wrongdoer. A decision to forgive provides the wronged with an incentive and a further reason to, and a further reason to forgive and creates a prospect of forgiveness for the wrongdoer. For non-weak agents, if they exist, the decision to forgive is the most relevant cause of successful forgiveness. It creates a normative expectation to which they respond, and it is the main reason why their attitudes and behavior toward the culprit change. For weak agents, we have difficulty behaving in line with their important evaluations over time, the decision to forgive although not as efficient, is not useless. It is a way of getting a foot in the door. In Bess Pascal's account of the wager, the libertine, like everyone, desires happiness and is convinced by the apologists that betting that God exists, that is, deciding to live on the premise that God exists, is instrumental to happiness. The acquisition of faith is not an effect of the bet, but its possible consequence in hearts and honoris sense, since it involves other factors, mainly God's grace as the relevant cause. Faith cannot be obtained at will, nor be directly brought about by human means, and this is true not only of the libertine, but of all human agents who, in Pascal's view, are constitutionally weak. Thus, the wager, which may consist in an implicit practical commitment to a Christian way of life, as well as in an explicit decision, plays the qualifying role of an entrance fee, which, however, does not buy faith. The dynamic view of forgiveness I propose draws on similar principles as Pascal's wager, Although the former, contrary to Pascal's wager, is about how to change one's desires, not one's beliefs. The wager is a useful technique for the libertine, 
not for the faithful. Likewise, people who need to forgive are those that are resentful, not those that who are merciful. In both cases, there is an outcome that is out of direct reach, that is, faith or successful forgiveness. And the decision to behave as a Christian or to forgive, which is nothing more than a technique for putting oneself in a different context, one from which the outcome may be achieved. In both cases, weak agents develop dispositions that do not fit into Aristotle's account of the robust virtues of the spudaios, the moral gentleman, and better correspond to his understanding, to Aristotle's understanding of good habits at the, at the very early stage of development as suggested by Jon Elster. One important difference with the case of forgiveness is that the wager is inevitable and is an ongoing commitment. According to Pascal, everybody, even the faithful, lives on either of these premises that God exists or that God does not exist. Forgiveness, by contrast, responds to the event of particular wrongs, not to the human condition in general. A connection between forgiveness and the wager may be made at another <laughs> level, too. It is not only that forgiveness shares some important psychological feature with the wager, but also that it may be integrated materially as an ingredient of a higher order wager. To some who share with Thomas Reed the consciousness of the frailty of human nature and the sense of having themselves, quote, I'm quoting Reed, often, often stood in need of forgiveness. Being able to forgive is also a way of becoming someone who could be forgiven by God, Matthew 6.15, or by others. At this meta level too, the relevant question is whether forgiving is a recipe for obtaining the expected outcome, that is, for being for forgiven, or just a matter of taking first steps in a transformation that only partly depends on us. Thus, theological controversies about grace and the mundane analysis of the dynamic of forgiveness shed light on one another. Thank you.